Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning and welcome to this morning's uh, special edition of the Signpost webinar, where I'm joined by Ch- uh, Chagas colleagues to launch and outline key findings from the National Farm Survey uh, Sustainability Report. Uh, the webinar will be slightly longer than usual and, and will run to one and a half hours. And the webinar marks the beginning of Chagas Signpost Sustainability Month, where during the month there will be a, a range of on-farm events, pre- predominantly on our signpost farms, and a number of online uh, events also. And for details of that, you can uh, Google uh, Signpost Sustainability Month. I'm delighted to be joined by uh, a range of, of colleagues, uh, uh, Professor Frank O'Mara, uh, Director of Chagas. Frank, you're, you're very welcome morning. this morning. Uh, Kevin Hanrahan, who is head of the Rural Economy and, and Development uh, Programme in Chagas. Good Kevin. morning. Uh, uh, Trevor Donlan, uh, head of the Agricultural Economics and Farm Survey uh, Department. Morning, Good morning, Trevor. Everyone. Good morning. Uh, Cahal Buckley, uh, who is the, the uh, researcher and lead author of the NFS of Sustainability uh, uh, Report. Uh, this is not your first gig this morning. Anyone who was up bright and early may have heard you on, on RT at about 10 past seven this morning. So uh, hopefully this will be a little bit more relaxed this, this morning. Thanks, Pat. And, and Simon Leach, uh, biodiversity technologist, uh, who will be uh, looking at uh, biodiversity on uh, development on, on NFS farms. Morning. Uh, Frank, I'll come to you first. Uh, I think the uh, sustainability report is part of the NFS. I think the, the, the first short report was uh, 2013. So, or two, yeah, 2013. So this is the, the 10th year. Uh, uh, no, I don't think we've had a report every year, but uh, the ten, it's 10 years since we started this report. It's become a key part of the NFS and, and of key importance to the agri-food industry. Absolutely, Pat, and good morning, everybody. And look, I'm delighted to be here at this. And uh, it's a great, um, actually, way to kick off the, the sustainability month in Chagas because this is a, a key report that we, we do. And it's a, it actually pulls together an awful lot of, of information around um, sustainability. And look, we, we all know sustainability is really, really important. And um, I suppose often when people hear the word sustainability, they immediately jump to things like climate change or, or water quality. And absolutely, mm-hmm. the environmental side of sustainability is is very important. But so, too, are the other two pillars of economic and social sustainability. And the, um, what the, what th- this report covers all three. And, and what it is essentially is um, using the data that's in the National Farm Survey. And that's a long running survey. It's running for 50 years now. It's a representative set of Irish farms and um, about a thousand farmers in it. And uh, it was established. It's a statutory requirement of Ireland to do that as part of our EU membership. So we can so we can report on the, the farm income situation on Irish farms. So so what we've done is we have over the last uh, 10 years at this stage is we've also used that information and collected some extra information on our farms to allow us to get a broader view of the sustainability of our farms and um, uh, so that's I suppose adding on the environmental and social uh, aspects of sustainability to the information on, on incomes and and that's what we're launching here today and as you said Pat it's the, the t- it's 10 years since we launched the first one it's actually our eighth you know we we didn't maybe at the time 
intend to do it every year, but it, it has become so important that we have turned it into an annual series. And, and that's very much part of its strength now, uh, is that we, we do have 10 years of data, and that allows us to, to track progress over time and see how things are changing and what's driving those changes. And I suppose smoothing out the impacts of, of, of shocks to the system, whether that's weather shocks or price shocks or, or, or whatever. So, um, so that's, that's what today is. And that's why I think it's, it's actually a great uh, event to kick off the sustainability month. And, um, and I, I very much compliment, uh, my colleagues in the, the, um, the farm survey department and the farm survey itself and Cahill. Um, as the key driver of this report for, for having created this really valuable analysis of the sustainability of Irish uh, agriculture going back, as I said, now over over 10 years. And we're actually leaders uh, in the EU in, in this. Um, one of the, the goals of the, the famous farm to fork strategy is to turn the, this network that, that is around the European Union of accountancy um, uh, uh, information, the, far, the FADEN, as, it, as it's called, farm accountancy and data network to turn that into a farm sustainability uh, data network. So, so look, um, Chagask and, and Ireland were one of the leaders of starting that, that initiative. And now it's, as I said, one of the goals of the, the farm to fork strategy. So, so it's, it's part of a European, I suppose, pr project at, at this stage. So look, um, you know, I'm not going to one, the of, one, one of the things I looked at that first report and one of the things that's, that's, seems to be constantly happening is an extension of the, the what's being looked at in the report the criteria that are be, are being examined and that's been i suppose the 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 story of the first 10 years of the report that it's expanding in importance and in significance but also in terms of scope and and we see that this morning with with biodiversity being taken on board absolutely yeah and uh, i suppose you know we, we 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 knew we had a rich source of data but um, obviously, we did need to to add additional uh, things to it. So, for instance, we weren't collecting information in the past on the type of nitrogen fertilizer being used, and that's obviously very important now to see what what proportion of our fertilizer is low emissions type, as in protected urea. So, 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 so we we certainly added to the data over the years. And um, uh, one of the things you know that we we would really like to crack is the whole biodiversity. Um, uh, an evaluation on, on the farm so that again we could get uh, a, a countrywide or a, 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 an agriculture-wide picture of the biodiversity status of our farm. So look, it, it, this this is not a, a complete um, uh, analysis yet. We will continue to improve and refine this uh, over the coming years. Okay, thank thank you very much, Frank. Uh, I then go to to Trevor. I think Trevor, you will give us uh, a presentation and and put a bit of context on on the report. Okay, I will do that now. Uh, just give me a moment. While, while Trevor is just getting oh, ready, I just re remind you that uh, if you have questions for the, any of the presenters, uh, to use the the Q and A, and we will go through the presentations and we'll have uh, hopefully an extended Q and A session at the end. Okay, Trevor. If you okay, you can see those slides. Pat? Yes, perfectly. Okay. Um, well, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm not going to uh, delay proceedings overly long here. I'm just going to talk to you for about ten minutes about the um, background policy context to to what we're doing here, and also maybe for those of you tuning in who are less familiar with the National Farm Survey, just to give it a brief little uh, summary around uh, that and. Uh, as the director mentioned as well, this transition 
to the Farm Sustainability Network that's happening at a European level. I'll give that a short mention uh, also. So just for context, um, the Chagas uh, National Farm Survey has been uh, around since 1972. So it goes all the way back to when uh, Chagas' predecessor on first Taluntas was in, in existence. Um, so it was established as part of our entry into the European Union, and there are an, uh, analogous data collection uh, activities taking place right away around the European Union. The, the philosophy behind this originally was to uh, so that the European Union could be sure of how its funds uh, for agriculture were, were being spent, and uh, gathering data uh, on farmers' incomes was considered to be uh, part uh, of. Uh, what what needed to be done in that regard. Um, I'll talk a little bit shortly about this transition uh, to a farm sustainability network. Um, that's something that was perceived to be quite important in the context of this EU farm to fork strategy, which aims to produce uh, a significant improvement in the environmental performance of agriculture across the, the European Union. Um, my colleague Cahill is going to talk uh, in detail later, and one of the things that I guess we want to convey in this discussion is that when we're talking about sustainability, we're talking about economic, social and environmental data. Uh, sometimes when people discuss sustainability, they can find the discussion to environmental issues. We'd be strong on uh, emphasising that uh, to have a sustainable agriculture sector means that you need to to achieve objectives that are economic, social and uh, environmental. So why are these three strands of sustainability important? What is all the fuss about in respect of sustainability? Well, if you just look at economic sustainability, uh, if you have a sustainable agriculture sector that can contribute to job, things like job creation, it can improve uh, generation and renewal, it can contribute to economic growth, it has benefits uh, downstream in terms of employment in food processing and distribution. You can enhance uh, food security as well. Uh, from the environmental point of view, sustainability is very important in the context of the preservation of our natural resources, uh, reductions in pollution, uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which we know now is uh, a huge issue, and the protection of our water and biodiversity. And then in a social context, we're talking about supporting the well-being of the farming community and society at large. Um, you know, we want to ensure that farming is an attractive, attractive livelihood in the context of things like um, work-life balance. And that's particularly important, I think, for younger generations uh, coming through. So in the context of policy, what has been happening over uh, the last 12 months? Well, we have a few things here which I'll just highlight. Um, at the national level, we already have uh, preparation in place to produce the next Climate Action Plan, the Climate Action Plan for uh, 2023. Also, there's work underway to produce carbon budgets that would extend beyond uh, the year 2030. So people on the call may be aware that there are already greenhouse gas reduction targets for the agriculture sector to be achieved by 2030. And these discussions will look at what sort of targets will exist right across the economy beyond that point out towards 2040 and even 2050. Um, at EU level, uh, the EU nature restoration law has achieved um, or received a lot of media uh, attention. 
just for context, it's part of the EU's biodiversity strategy and it targets the restoration of uh, ecosystems. So um, when the, nat the nature restoration law is eventually put into place, uh, EU member states will be required to produce uh, nature restoration plans as part of that process. And then finally, uh, and, and, and as was mentioned by the director, we have this farm sustainability data network. A regulation is currently going through in Brussels uh, to put that in place. And that will widen the range of farm data that is collected right across the European Union, uh, taking it into the sphere of environmental and social data. Uh, you know, we're actually fortunate in Ireland that we're further down the tracks than many other countries are in that regard. Some member states have very little data uh, at, a, at a farm level in terms of the environmental performance of their farms or the social sustainability of their farms. And the other objective here of the Farm Sustainability Nation Network is to uh, modernise the data uh, collection process that is used across the European Union. Um, uh, we're now into a new era of the CAP. Um, uh, as of the 1st of January, we're into a, a new cap. And uh, this uh, new cap uh, in, at the member state level has uh, required the creation of a cap strategic plan. So this is something that has been created right across the European Union at the member state level. And the focus of the cap strategic plan is on the delivery of 10 specific cap objectives, which I'll mention briefly in uh, the next slide. And those cap objectives largely break down into economic, social and economic challenges. And the data Cahill uh, will talk about in his presentation will reflect where we are in terms of our agriculture sector in meeting some of those challenges. Um, and one of the things we need to keep in mind as well is that um, even though we're talking here about the common agricultural policy, increasingly it's being influenced by wider policy at the European Union level. Uh, at the top, we, we could think about it, it being uh, the European Green Deal, uh, which has a substantial ambition to place the European Union as a leader in terms of environmental uh, improvements uh, right across the economy and not just in agriculture. The farm to fork strategy is a specific strategy that relates to the Green Deal and is focused around uh, agriculture and, and delivering uh, environmental benefits uh, through um, a more environmental compliant agricultural production system. And then finally, you have the, the, the biodiversity strategy, which is which aims at restoring uh, biodiversity uh, in our landscapes across the European Union. So these are all influencing how the cap is evolving. So our 10 objectives are shown here in this uh, uh, circular uh, diagram on the on the right. And they break, as I said, largely into three groups, the economic group, uh, which you see near the top, the environmental group over to the right and the social group. Uh, down at the bottom there. Um, and then we have a 10th one, which is called knowledge and innovation. And knowledge and innovation is seen, I guess, as a cross-cutting type of uh, objective. And the, the view is that if we can improve uh, the dissemination of knowledge and innovation across the agriculture sector, that will then contribute to uh, more successfully achieving the other nine uh, objectives. So in the context of the this new cap, uh, what is happening exactly? Well, we have we still have our two pillars of the CAP. That structure has uh, been maintained. The, the total support for 
Irish agriculture annually will be in the territory of about €2 billion Euro per year, um, with €1.2 billion of that uh, falling into Pillar 1, and I'll explain that uh, in more detail in a moment, and the residual then falling into uh, Pillar 2. Um, so just to discuss what's happening under Pillar 1, um, it's broadly the same amount of money that existed on the previous under the previous CAP, but there are new structures in place um, in terms of how farmers receive that level of support. Uh, the single biggest chunk of that support is going to come in the Basic Income Support for Sustainability, or BIS, and that um, mechanism uh, is a, a primary income support mechanism that it, that will exist in um, the, the, this new CAP. Um, importantly, we have the introduction of what are called eco-schemes now under Pillar 1. And these eco-schemes will pay farmers for engaging in activities which will have positive, positive environmental benefits. Um, so that's a key change relative to the previous cap. Uh, we, and then we also have two other important strands, one relating to support for young farmers. And finally, uh, the, at the bottom there, we also have a support payment which uh, steers support slightly towards uh, smaller farms. Under Pillar 2, um, the, the total amount of funding is higher now than it would have been previously. The Irish government will also make a bigger contribution under Pillar 2 than would have previously been the case. Uh, it will continue to, to support leader companies, but there's also this important uh, replacement for uh, GLOSS under Pillar 2, uh, the Acres Scheme, uh, which people are probably increasingly becoming familiar with. Um, the overall aim uh, in in that context is to even drive further the environmental improvements that can be achieved in agriculture. Under Pillar 1, now farmers are uh, expected to achieve specific standards in relation to environmental compliance and farmers who sign up to the Acres Scheme are essentially saying that they will do even more uh, in terms of promotion of uh, positive environmental impacts within the agriculture sector. Uh, there are also some other supports that, that are worthy of note, it, uh, increased support for organic farming. And uh, in a future report, we hope to be able to produce uh, detailed data on the sustainability of organic farms as well. So if you tune in this time next year, you might find us talking about that. Um, and then just finally, to introduce uh, what Cahill is going to talk about, we're going to have a discussion of our four principal farm systems, dairy, cattle, sheep and uh, tillage. Um, Cahill will go through a, a, a lot of indicators as part of the discussion. Um, and uh, I, I guess the key point to take uh, as my final remark is that this is just a favour, basically, of what is in uh, the National Farm Survey. I think I'm right in saying that we report something like 1600 variables to, uh, to, to the European Commission. And we have a whole range of variables in addition to that uh, associated with environmental and social sustainability, which increasingly will be reported to Brussels as well as part of this transition to the Farm Sustainability Data Network. So I'm going to pass you back now uh, uh, to Pat uh, uh, at this point. Thank you. Thanks very much, Trevor. Uh... The policy context is not getting any simpler. The requirements are, I think, growing all the time, and that's likely to continue in this space. So it, it, it's not going to get any easier. Cahal 
if you would just then give us the the outline of the the sustainability report. Hey, thanks, Pat. Can you can you hear yeah, me? Okay, perfectly there. Okay, oh, it's gone again. Okay, perfect. Thanks, Pat. So, um, as Trevor says, I'm going to go through the results for 2022. Uh, by way of I suppose overview of the presentation, I'm going to start with the theoretical framework, and Trevor has touched on this already go through the methodology results and then offer some conclusions and discussion at the end. So in terms of the framework, okay, the way I like to conceptualize this or, to, or frame it is sustainability is really a, a, analogous to a three-legged stool where you have the economic, environmental and social legs. And to be truly sustainable, a farm has to be strong in those three dimensions. Trevor mentioned earlier, we do have um kind of a stable, a kind of a, a buttressing a dimension, which is called innovation, which helps to stabilize the other three legs of the stool. Um, if one of those legs isn't stable, the system is, you know, is 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 rocky, and ultimately you're you're in danger of of sustainability failure. So it's you know all three legs have to be accounted for in any holistic sustainability assessment. Just want to touch on the data we use to 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 generate the results. We, uh, as Trevor said, we're reporting across the main land-based uh, systems of production dairy cattle sheep and tillage in 2022 our farm our sample size uh was 774 a little down on previous years uh we had some of our our long established farm recording staff retired uh and uh, and i'd like to pay compliments to the remaining staff and particularly the new staff who were hired to replace them who have the trojan work to get us to that number we weren't sure what kind of numbers we'd have in the end so i'd like to acknowledge their their trojan work and getting to that number the, those farms uh, represent 84,000 farms nationally. A uh, couple of things I want to, to point out because it will, it will help in terms of kind of explaining some of the context of the results later on is that dairy and tillage farms have larger farm sizes compared to the dry stock sector. The Even though like these farms are classified based on their main output, like for so sheep meat and, and crops and so on, but these farms have a significant cattle enterprise that becomes important when you see some of the emissions profiles later on. Dairy also, but the, the vast majority of those dairy livestock, what we call cattle livestock units on dairy farms are actually replacement animals for the dairy herd, you know, breeding stock. Uh, and as we can see, the, the livestock, the stocking rate is significantly higher on dairy farms than it is on the, the cattle and tillage farms. So in terms of some housekeeping, when you see a diagram like this, essentially we're 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 showing the ninety percent distribution of results. So the the box in the middle is your interquartile range, the twenty fifth to seventy percent percentile. The line in the middle is the median, and the whiskers are the tenth and the ninety percentile. When you see a diagram like this, we've divided the results by economic performance based on gross margin from the top third, middle third, and bottom third. Uh, when you see a graph like this, we're, we're contrasting across systems. So throughout the presentation, tillage will remain green, uh, sheep will be purple, cattle will be red, and dairy will be blue. And when you see uh, um, a graph like this, we're, we're basically presenting results on a three-year rolling average basis. Why are we doing that? Well, the director touched on it earlier on. We're trying to account for short-term price and weather shocks, positive and negative. So you could see a spike in one year, and it could be related to a, to a price or weather. So this kind of a, an approach uh, kind of smooths out the noise in the data and you can kind of discern long-term trends. That's not to say we haven't, we, we, we're not hiding anything. All the individual year results are actually at the back of the appendix in the, in the report itself. Okay, so starting with the, the first leg of the stool, the economic branch, um, we're reporting on, on uh, gross margin per hectare and gross, margin, uh, gross output per hectare and gross margin. 
two income-based uh, indicators, uh, family family income per hectare, but also family family income per unpaid family labour unit. And finally, to then relate to uh, how much of the of the farm output is derived from subsidies and how much uh, and whether the um, farm is economically viable. And I'll, I'll get, get into the definition of this in, in a while. So, okay, starting with the three land-based uh, metrics, uh, gross output, gross margin, and family farm income. You can see in the blue that you know it's a it's not it's not a new phenomenon that the dairy dairy farms uh, have significantly higher gross output margin and family farm income on a per hectare basis. Uh, so that's a, that's not a new story. If you look at the the graphic on the on the right hand side, this is the long term trend where you can see that that gap between dairy tillage in the middle and dry sectors at the bottom. It's been a fairly well long established trend. What is what we are seeing that is that dairy and to extend tillage are actually been trending up towards the the end of the time series. So the the, the returns, the economic returns of dairy have been have been have been trending upwards. Okay, so what we're seeing here is the contrast between different systems. But I want to show you something uh, in relation to this is the the um, family farm income on dairy farms divided by top, middle, and bottom by gross margin. And you can see the significant variability within within systems. So we have variability across systems, dairy cattle, beef, and sheep, but also you've seen huge variability within systems, as, as you can see here from the from the dairy profile. Um, okay, but the second one is I want to touch on is the the productivity of labor. So this is this is family farm income per unpaid family labor unit. So how much labor is going in there from the from the farmer, the spouse, any kids or uh, other family and so on? So the gap actually between tillage and dairy narrows significantly when it come when you do it on a, on an unpaid family labor basis. Why is that? Because there's probably one there's about 1.5 1.6 labor units uh, going into uh, family labor units going into to the average uh, dairy farm compared to about 0.9 for the average tillage farm. So when you do it on a per labor basis, the gap narrows between those two systems. Look, the cattle and the sheep are, are still lagging well behind um, the, these two. And uh, that's again, that's a fairly well established trend in the data uh, uh, with the gap. But also, you know, both those systems have been trending up in the last couple of years due to, uh, I suppose, higher upper prices in 2022 in particular. Um, we'll kind of see, we'll probably see a reversal of that in the coming year with, with, with things that are going. Also, um, I was going to say this is look. This is the distribution of the results across the different systems: dairy, tillage, uh, cattle, and sheep. And you can see, even though uh, th there's variability across systems, the within systems variability is significant as well. So, like, there's an awful lot of of stuff going on across systems, but even within systems. So, the final economic one I want to touch on is economic viability. So, it's kind of a yes/no, one/zero uh, criteria. Farm is said to be economically viable if they can return the minimum minimum wage for the family labour employed and give a five percent return on non-land-based assets. Non-land-based assets being machinery, uh, equipment, and so on, and buildings. The minimum wage was ten ten fifty for in, in twenty twenty two. So again, we're seeing a divergence between the the cattle and the the, the, the intelligent dairy uh, because of the I suppose the good year dairy had about ninety five percent of them are, are economically viable. About eighty percent of the tillage farms at eighty five percent, whereas the cattle and sheep are down around twenty five percent. And that's again that trend is is fairly well established in in the time series, but it's been trending up slightly for dairy for dairy and, and tillage in recent times. A little bit for, for the sheep sheep and cattle, but they're consistently around twenty twenty five percent or so in terms of viability. A lot of them see got on plans on the back of that. Okay, so moving on to the second leg of the stool is the, the social sustainability dimension. So we've three three indicators in relation to the household, uh, whether a household is vulnerable or not, uh, uh, whether they're an isolation risk or whether they're a high age profile. 
We want in relation to whether they've received some sort of formal agricultural education. And finally, then two in relation to to hours worked. So how many how much hours are worked on the farm, and then how much work total hours in terms of on and off farm employment. So okay, going on to the first one there, the I'm going to touch on a few a few of them. Not all of them could use time constraints, but in terms of the household uh, vulnerability, uh, far, you know, if we go back to the the economic viability that definition, if if a farm is not viable, and if they have no farm off, uh, no off farm employment, then they're said to be vulnerable. And again, it's a one zero yes no um, uh, barrier bar. So we're kind of seeing the reverse of what we saw on the economic side in terms of the dairy and tillage farms being being less vulnerable. Because uh, a lot of them are already kind of be viable from an act perspective, uh, but you get the you get the you know the the reduction in terms the the okay the cattle and sheep farmers are more vulnerable but less so in terms of the, you know a lot of them off farm employment. I mean, around thirty percent of them uh, are neither are, are are neither economically viable nor have off farm employment, which is uh which is which is concerning. But again, the trend in in time series is generally well established. Okay, we are seeing a decline in. And vulnerability in the cattle and 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 sheep systems in recent times, which is a which is a good good news story. And the, the the final two on the, the social side I want to touch on are the hours worked. So if you just look at the hours worked on farm, you can see on the red bar there. Look, there's a significant gap between dairy and other systems on a on, a, on farm labour basis, um, about thousand hours. But uh, and we know like labour is very labour intensive. But when you account for off-farm employment, the cause uh, nearly half, nearly, nearly half the farmers uh, in in cattle, sheep, and tillage systems have some type of off-farm employment, and a lot of spouses have as well. So when you just on farmer on the farmer basis, the, the gap between the the total hours worked isn't as significant from dairy and others, but the, it is it is uh, still still a couple of hundred hours more on the dairy farms. I suppose the concerning trend, from my perspective, is that. That that that's trending upwards, like you know, the uh, those hours being put on the, by the farmer onto dairy farms is has been increasing over the time series, which is a concern from a, from a work life balance perspective going forward. You know, how 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 far can they push that envelope in terms of hours worked on the farm is an open question and, and a concerning one. Um, this is a, a graphic uh, my colleague Emma Dillon and Brian Moran generated. Basically, we look have a look at certain uh, social sustainability indicators on a once off basis year on year. I'm not going to dwell on any huge detail on this because I wouldn't do it justice. So you can, I, can, I can refer you to, to Emma if you want to follow up. But like we've we've taken temperature on farmers in terms of how often to take a, a break from the farm, when the last visit a doctor, how regularly they have contact with people outside the farm, whether they get help or not, and portion of, of farms with female labour input in, in, in 2022. So there's a lot of detail there. It's in the report. And and, and if any follow-up questions, I can, I'll can defer you to, to my colleague Emma Dillon. Okay, so the final leg of the stool then is the environmental branch. Uh, so look at we report on gaseous emissions, both greenhouse gases and ammonia. On the greenhouse gas side, we do it on the IPCC, the same as the EPA National Energy's approach, but we do it on a farm basis. We also have a, a life cycle assessment for on the dairy side. On the second environmental dimension is the risk to water quality. So we're tracking inputs and outputs through the farm gauge to see how efficiently farmers are using their nitrogen and phosphorus. Because higher higher surfaces are all other things being equal are higher risk to transfer to both to the atmosphere but also to water quality. Finally, we're developing a biodiversity indicator, and I'm not going to dwell on this because Simon is going to outline this in, in a lot more detail in, in his presentation. Okay, so um, we report I think like something like sixteen indicators on the environmental side, on the greenhouse gas, the ag based, and energy based emissions from per farm per hectare. 
a kilogram of product, be it meat, meat milk, uh, and so on, uh, and cheap meat, and your output, and the same for the energy side. On the ammonia side, again, per farm, per hectare, per kilogram of output, and per euro of output. And on the risk of water quality, NMP balances and, and use efficiencies. I'm going to touch on some of these uh, in the in time I have in terms of the, the, the trends in, in recent times. Okay, so why are we reporting in different, uh, different levels, I guess? Okay, when we're reporting farm and per hectare levels, we're essentially reporting absolute emissions, like what's has the emissions on farm and per hectare increased or decreased? And when we're reporting on per kg of output and per year of output, we're actually looking at the carbon footprint of that production. You know, is the, you know, based on the amount of product being produced, is the footprint of that product going up or down? Both, to, both those two, um, both those two reporting frameworks are important to see what's happening in the overall the overall scheme of things. Okay, so jumping into jumping into some of the results. So for twenty twenty two for for dairying, we're seeing. Um, with a slight reduction on the previous year, 606 tons of CO2 equivalent, majority of it coming from milk production. The cattle side there generally is to do with replacements. It is on dairy farms, look, it's four to five times higher than the sheep and tillage farms. Um, it's just the nature of the production, intensity of production of, of dairy farms. Uh, something like the other systems are generally the same, or 140, 150 tons per, per farm. Something I want to highlight there, and you can see it in the, in the red circles below, is that even though they're classified as sheep and tillage farms, there's a, there's a, they have a significant cattle enterprise, and a lot of the emissions on these farms are being driven by that cattle enterprise as opposed to their main output of sheep and, 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 and tillage. This is the trend, the farm level trend uh, through time over the, the five year uh, time series. Okay, we saw uh, we saw a decrease from, between, from the decline in 2022 from 2021. But the long-term kind of three-year rolling average is upwards. So if we see it, if we see a decline in 2023 next year, we'll start to see that that, that trend declining. On the non-dairy farms, it's been static. It's not slightly declining towards. It's actually been declining towards in the in the time series. Um, the overall fact, you know, when you combine the dairy and the non-dairy, it's slightly up because the, the 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 declines in the other systems are not quite enough to, to, to offset what's happening in the dairy side. We are seeing some green shoots in 2022 on the back of um, reduced chemical fertilizer use down by 15, 15, 16%. Uh, so, you know, year on year, we are seeing a decline in, in, in the dairy and all other, other, other sectors. Okay, the the, the 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 gap between the dairy and other systems is not, a, when you do it on a per hectare basis, GHG per hectare, is not as large as it is on a farm basis. Why? Because earlier I showed you the dairy farms have much farm, much larger farm sizes. So, you know, we're seeing that the on a, on a per hectare basis, they're about double what the cattle are and maybe two, three times what the sheep are. Um, so it's not as not as stark as a, at a farm scale. And again, the if you look at the time series, uh, it's trending up slightly. Again, we're seeing decline in 2022 versus 2021. Well, that trend that that, that, decline, that that trend is to continue in 2023. We'll see a we'll see a downturn in the three year rolling average time series, which is a, which is a positive which is a positive going forward. Again, the non dairy systems uh, have been have been declining generally over static slash slash declining slightly declining over the time series. Okay, so look, we've seen basically look the the the, the majority of the mission like at the farm scale, the dairy farms are generally got more emissions than the cattle farms. And okay, twenty twenty is two aside, like you know, uh, what's been driving those increases in absolute emissions. But essentially, we can break the dairy dairy um, emissions down into three components. Okay, the first component is the kilograms of milk produced per cow. So we're producing, we're looking at the standard um, kg of milk fat and protein corrected. 4% fat, 3.3% protein. So we can see over the time series, uh, farmers are actually producing 
more milk per cow, which is an efficiency gain, which is positive. That's a good news story. The second component driving absolute emissions is the carbon footprint of the milk. So again, over the time series, we're seeing the footprint of that milk being produced with a lower carbon footprint. So again, that's a good news story that farmers are producing milk more and more carbon efficiently over the time series. But it's it's the third part which is actually driving the overall emissions. It's the herd sizes, I suppose. Since 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 cold abolition, we're seeing a year on year linear increase in the average herd size on on, on dairy farms. Uh, and this kind of this, I suppose, this is overriding what's happening on the other two dimension, the other two components, the, the kg of milk per cow and and the footprint. And you know, the thing is, if we if we didn't do improvements in the, the first two, then this, this the overall emissions would actually be higher. And uh, it's, the efficiency gains are offsetting some of the uh, increase in herd size. On the sheep, on the sheep and cattle side, look on the footprint side, we're generally seeing a decline over the uh, kind of a, re a reduction in carbon footprint of beef and sheep meat over the over time series, which again is a good news story. Farmers are producing product more carbon efficiently. But it's just thing I want to highlight: like, is there's a massive variability within the systems in terms of top, middle, and bottom, what, how carbon efficiently they're doing it in terms of some of the. They want the bottom, the more uh, the bottom again farmers have double carbon footprint of, of the more efficient producers. So that's something like that's one that highlight the heterogeneity that's in, in within these results. Okay, so the second uh, uh, gaseous dimension is ammonia. Um, so again, we're reporting emissions per farm and per hectare, which is the absolute level, and we're also doing it on a, a per kg of output and per year of output, which is the footprint of that of the of the ammonia emissions. So again, at a, on a farm basis, dairying uh, three tons per per three tons per farm, which is slightly up from the previous year. It's below the long term trend, but slightly up from the previous year. Why is that? Because we, we saw farmers kind of uh, because of fertilizer prices uh, buy straight straight more straight urea urea than heretofore, and that's a very very high uh, ammonia emissions. Okay, protected urea was up, but but so but so was straight urea, and this offsets some of the gains we we achieved from low emission slurry spreading and so on. Again, it's four to five times higher than the non-dairy, the, the other um, systems, dairy, sheep, and tillage, or cattle, sheep, and tillage, rather. Um, and again, I want to highlight the, the sheep and the tillage farms, that a significant amount of the ammonia is being driven by the cattle enterprise on those farms. So uh, the long-term long -term trend on ammonia is actually positive. You know, we've been seeing declines year on year for the last couple of years. Okay, with a bit of a blip on dairy farms in 2022, and again, it's it's due to the fertilizer that was applied, straight urea versus other versus the not the lower, lower uh, urea fertilizers. Uh, but the long term trend hope is declining. Hopefully, we get back to that in 2023. Uh, the non dairy farms also showed a decline in ammonia uh, in 2022 and long term time series. Um, again, on a per hectare basis, the, the, the gap between dairy and non-dairy isn't as, as significant, again, because dairy farms are larger, double, kind of uh, significantly larger in terms of farm sizes. But dairy farms are about double what the cattle are and three times what the, the sheep are. Um, and again, the, the long-term time trend is for is that those emissions on a rolling three-year average basis are going down, notwithstanding what happened in, in 2022. So that was just, just, a, just a blip. I'm going to finish coming towards the end here, but we, we do report some some indicators that look at risk to water quality, uh, and it's the, the main two in terms of the source pressure are nitrogen and phosphorus balances. 
How do we do that? It's basically an accounting approach where we track what's coming in to the farm gate in terms of how much nitrogen is coming in of phosphorus, uh, sorry, how much is coming in, how many P and K is coming in in fertilizer and feeds, organic manure and seeds and so on. And then what's going on at the far side in terms of how much N and P is going out in product, milk, meat, crops and so on. One minus the other gives you your, your surplus per hectare. And all other things being equal, and that's a, a, a hugely uh, a ubiquitous statement when it comes to water quality. Other things being equal, the lower the, the lower the surplus, the lower the, the source pressure locally. But we know uh, we know water, water quality is hugely dependent on the local biophysical conditions like soils, hydrology, weather, uh, as well as the source pressure. We also look at, at um, nitrogen phosphorus use efficiency, which is how much, uh, it's kind of an agronomic measure, how much of the nitrogen and phosphorus is being captured in product. So the more, more you capture in product, the less is available for loss to the atmosphere or to the, or to the environment. Okay, so the end balance, you're essentially looking at what's coming in and inputs and what's going out in outputs on a per hectare basis. And the results for 2022, again, we're seeing a differential between dairy and the non-dairy systems about three times higher. But the 150 is actually a significant decline on previous years. It was uh, declining since about uh, 2020, 2018. We're seeing a decline where it was, where it was up around 200 and it's down to 150. So in the last couple of years, we're seeing an improvement in the downward trend, which is which is positive also on the, on the non-dairy systems. So, you know, it is, uh, I suppose there are incentives there in terms of fertilizer price. Farmers are getting to be using their fertilizer more efficiently. And this is this is effect also in the nitrogen use efficiency. Far, uh, dairy farms are hitting close to thirty percent now in twenty twenty two, and the long term trend is upwards. So, so there, there's massive incentives there with fertilizer price and so on to to far, farmers to to optimize here. Uh, and you know that was seen by reduced chemical end, and, and farmers have been transitioning towards clover and multi-species stores and so on as a hedge against these fertilizer prices, which is improving. Uh, performance. Finally, the last leg of the, the stool is a stabilizer. So I'm going to touch on on some innovation indicators. You know, we're we're strongly promoting things like low emission slurry spreading and protected uh, urea and chalice mac. And you know, we've seen a massive increase in the amount of slurry being applied by low emission slurry spreading in recent years. So at the, in 2022, in three quarters of all dairy slurry and nearly a third of cattle slurry was applied by by less, which is Significant wrapping up to what it was in 2017, which was basically min minimal. So, you know, on the back of regulation and advice, that farmers really, really uh, embraced that that technology. Less so on the predicted urea, unfortunately. Okay, it's going in the right direction. Um, in, in 2022, about 14% of chemical N on dairy farms was applied by a predicted urea. Uh, less so on, on cattle and sheep farms, but like, you know, really need to get that 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 message out there that that, that predicted urea needs to be applied. Because it, it is it is a significant reduction in ammonia emissions, which we which we're on the hook for. Okay, so to summarize, um, on the economic and social metrics or dimensions of legs of the stool, dairy performs strongly in terms of the farm and per hectare, uh, more so than the other three systems. But when you when you do it on a, on a per unit of unpaid family labor, the tillage farms are actually quite comparable to dairy farms because dairy farms have a lot more family labor in their 1.5, 1.6 labor units. About 0 0.9 for tillage. Trisock systems look their challenge on the economic side and their challenge on the, on the social side um, for a number of reasons. In absolute emissions in 2022, we saw a decline um, in 2022 back to 2021 levels, and it's basically due to reduced chemical N, you know, and fertilizer prices were off the charts in 2022. 
Uh, so the incentive is there, and farmers are, are realizing that you know things like clover and multi-species are a hedge against these these fertilizer price shocks, which are external, which, which are very geo- geopolitically um, dependent. Uh, the other farm systems also showed a decline again, driven by on a far, farm and per hectare basis, again driven by re- reduced chemical N fertilizer use mainly. On the ammonia side, look, we, we did see an increase on the dairy side, which is unfortunate. And it's basically down to the use of straight urea, um, kind of offsetting what was the what was being made on the other on the other side in terms of low emission slurry spreading. And other systems have showed a decline on a farm and a particular basis over the previous years. Look at the carbon footprint of the carbon and ammonia footprint of the of the product, the meat and milk is generally improving. Farms are producing it on a more efficient basis. Um, and on the innovation side, we're we're showing you know low emission slurry spreading has been hugely embraced across the uh, across the farming farming population. Protected urea remains low, and we really like to get message out to the farmers should really uh, look at look at using this 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 uh, fertilizer going forward. So that's all for me, Pat. That's my email address. That's the link to the publication, which will be up there uh, presently after the webinar. Uh, so I'll hand back to to you, to you Pat. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Carl. Uh, a lot to take in there. Uh, some key messages at the end, and I, I suppose 2022 and into 2023 have seen some fairly dramatic changes in brought about by uh, prices and availability, <coughs> particularly of, of fertilizer, which are are having very significant impacts on on the the, the figures. Uh, and it will be interesting over the next while to see where, where that plays out. Excuse me. Uh, so uh, thanks very much for that. Just to remind people, to uh, for, if you have questions uh, for Cahal, just to use the Q&A and we'll come to them after the, the, the next presentation. Uh, so, uh, Simon, uh, uh, I suppose this is a, a further development. What you're talking about is, is the introduction of biodiversity indicators uh, and uh, if you yeah present to us there, we'll get an idea of what's proposed in this area. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me here. Can you see that all right, Pat? Yes, that's perfect. Great. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Um, thanks for the opportunity to present today. Um, my name's Simon Leach. I was recruited as a biodiversity technologist earlier this year as part of Chagas New Climate Centre. Um, my role is a joint appointment between the Crops, Environment and Land Use Programme in Johnstown Castle and the Rural Economy and Development Programme. I plan to provide a bit of context in terms of biodiversity and the benefits of linking an indicator with the National Farm Survey. I'll briefly recap on some of the previous development work that has been undertaken and provide an overview of how we plan to deliver an NFS biodiversity indicator. I will also highlight some of the related challenges and key data requirements for the proposed approach. So firstly, why biodiversity? Um, we're in the midst of a widely acknowledged biodiversity crisis. A series of targets have been set in recent years to halt and reverse losses. Biodiversity is considered a key sustainability metric although it's largely been omitted from measurement and reporting to date. Addressing biodiversity loss is a central objective of the Common Agricultural Policy, and there's increasing investment to address this and other sustainability challenges. There are also close links to the wider climate challenge and the need to maintain resilient ecosystems. For all of the above reasons, 
there's a high demand for better information to quantify biodiversity levels and to monitor and measure change. Currently, there's no regular, systematic, repeatable and statistically representative monitoring of farmland biodiversity in the wider countryside. Our aim is to address this gap through the implementation of a biodiversity indicator within the NFS. We aim to include data on habitats for all National Farm Survey and Small Farm Survey farms. This will provide a data set of habitat quantity and also quality on both the more economically active farms and also the smaller farms, which are associated with a higher degree of nature value. A key benefit of linking with the National Farm Survey is the opportunity to leverage combined analysis with other metrics captured in the survey. As we develop the methodology, the aim is to make best possible use of nationally available datasets and existing resources, maximising efficiencies and economies of scale. The approach will also be designed to be repeatable, making use of data updates going forward to assess change over time. A number of projects undertaken in recent years have contributed to our current work plan. Ideal HNV assessed Ireland's landscapes to identify the distribution and extent of agricultural land of a high nature value. Better understanding the distribution of these HNV systems can facilitate better targeting of resources. Prioritising reinstatement of habitats in lower nature value areas while placing more focus on quality improvements in regions of higher nature value. Capturing biodiversity information for the small farm survey, as well as for the national survey, will ensure that these high nature value areas are adequately represented in the data. At farm scale, pilot projects such as smart agri hubs have developed the use of farm habitat indexes. Farms were scored and ranked based on the extent of different habitats, taking account of their relative value in supporting biodiversity. Lower scoring farms, such as the example on the left, are generally dominated by improved grassland and intensive systems. Areas of semi-natural grassland and woodland, indicated by the areas of purple and brown hatching in the middle example, increase the index score as they provide more diverse and natural areas. The upland farm on the right includes large areas of wet heath and blanket bog, while the grassland is entirely semi-natural and achieves a higher index score as a result. Habitat mapping for this scoring was undertaken via manual image interpretation, which can quickly become prohibitively expensive. The release of the National Land Cover Map in March of 2023 provides a nationally consistent source of mapping with a reference year of 2018, the classification scheme is closely aligned with the widely used faucet system. Part of the Farm for Bio project engaged expert contributors to define a conservation value score for each of the land cover classes. By combining these national mapping with such a scoring system, we can present conservation values within a range of geographical frameworks, such as the electoral districts, which are shown in the inset image. The land cover mapping delineates the agricultural landscape at parcel scale and captures hedgerows, tree lines and other habitat features. 
by extracting the land cover information for NFS farms and assigning conservation value scores for these land covers, we will be in a position to generate a measure of the quantity of habitat at a farm level. Accurate definition of farm boundaries is a key data requirement for this process to ensure that metrics reflect all land managed under the contributing holding. A biodiversity quantity metric can be generated and the outputs will also aid the targeting of subsequent field survey efforts. Understanding and monitoring the quality of habitats is also important. The structure and species diversity of a hedgerow, for example, will have a huge impact on its biodiversity value. We plan to design and implement a targeted field campaign to measure habitat quality for a selected subset of habitats. Scorecards, such as those developed in the Farm Ecos project, will likely be employed to aid efficient data capture. The aim will be to produce a dataset from which we can evaluate the range and distribution of habitat quality, both across and between farms and farm categories. Both the quantity and quality methodologies will be designed to be repeatable to facilitate assessment of change over time. As we develop and implement these surveys, we will review and document the strengths and weaknesses of the approaches and the data sources. There will be particular focus on the degree to which the national land cover map can contribute to the wider monitoring of biodiversity. We will work to better understand the impact of data accuracy at farm level, learn more about land cover map update plans and fully evaluate the capacity for the detection of change over time. We'll work with partners and stakeholders to establish ongoing data sharing and access agreements to fully embed the biodiversity metric into the National Farm Survey. Associated work will be undertaken to better understand the spatial scale of landscape changes that result from policy and management interventions, as well as the timescales over which these changes can be effectively measured. The biodiversity indicator will provide a mechanism to track habitat quantity and quality within the nationally representative framework of the National Farm Survey. Ongoing review will aim to refine and develop the methodology over time, but the fundamental aim is to build and maintain a representative, robust and repeatable indicator for farmland biodiversity. Thanks very much. That's my material. Okay, thanks, Simon. Uh, and I suppose... Uh, uh... A question that that uh, uh, springs to mind in relation to the the work on on biodiversity is uh, the sample that we have in the National Farm Survey is it representative of the areas in in which we have, if you want, high and nature value, our upland areas and some of our our I suppose lower intensity farms, or will it require, a, I suppose, a fundamental change in in the in the farms that we have within the survey, or is that a, a too difficult question to answer at this stage? Um, well, I, I believe that's where the small farm survey comes in and provides the the, the important link to those higher nature value areas. Um, there's a you know, there's a focus on larger, um, lot financially larger farms in in the main survey, but the the small farms survey provide that balance. Yeah, I think that I mean the the NFS is 
uh, almost 50 years old and it's part of the FADN. So it's primarily has traditionally been focused on the economic um, uh, objectives. But as we've demonstrated here today, we are now looking across the three dimensions of, of sustainability. Um, and our work has uh, has been at the forefront in, in, in driving that development at a European level. And for certain, uh, as society places more value on the non-marketed output of agriculture in terms of landscape provisions, services, so on, uh, and particularly services provided by land uses that are much less uh, um, productive in terms of producing food outputs. Um, uh, and as policy gets more important in supporting those um, type of activities, um, the, the focus will shift towards more measurement on those type of areas. Um, but it's 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 you, it's very difficult to jump quickly and immediately into doing that. And um, so we have had a small farm survey in the field. We had one in 2015. That our plan is to repeat that on on an, on, on a regular basis, not on an annual basis, but on a regular basis. And as the um, as the law changes, if the law changes to say that we must measure all those small farms that are um, producing less food, but are may well be producing more uh, biodiversity habitats uh, or habitats of better quality um, will respond to the demands of society. And I suppose a, a, a follow on uh, the changes that have happened in acres versus um, the, the previous agri-environmental schemes, particularly in the upland and in the CP areas, I presume there is a, an advantage if we can get data sharing to be able to analyze the scores that are coming through and the data that's coming through uh, uh, and to leverage some of that. Yeah, yeah. All, I mean, all everything that we do in the National Farm Survey, and I'm sure Carl uh, and Trevor would want to, to come, comment on this as well, is based on the voluntary participation of farmers. And there's a number of questions that have come in from the audience about are we measuring or do we have information on, on, it, on different types of farms that we've talked on here today? Um, and we will work to expand the kind of the set of farms that we're that we have measurements on but we will need the cooperation of those farmers it's all on a voluntary basis and the same thing goes for farmers who are smaller in, in economic scale but may have a bigger environmental or ecological input so um we will do that and our indicator set development then is always done in tandem with our animal and environmental science colleagues and with the best economic science as well and you know while it might seem very straightforward and sensible it, it takes an awful lot of work to get uh, to get to where we will need to get to over time. So, you know, so on the surface, Cahill's presentation was like a swan. The usual analogy is calmly moving across the water, but there's an awful lot of work going on underneath um, that necessary to provide these annualized indicators and particularly ones that, as Simon stressed in his presentation, are statistically robust and actually are meaningful in an economic sense, in an environmental sense and in a social sense. And we, it might be great to do it to do it once, but that's of value for certain. We're telling about what's going on now, but we need to basically have a vision of what's happening through time and across space and across different types of farms. Um, so it has to be repeatable um, to give us that perspective on what are we making progress? Are the policies that we're implementing as a society doing what we want them to do? And what are those things that we might want to consider doing to make things better? be that environmentally, socially, or economically. Okay. Okay, uh, Kevin, a good few questions coming in from, from the audience. Um, yeah. 
I mean, what the first, I, I, I'll take the first one. We, I think let's do it chronologically, Pat, that I'm not sure how you usually do these things. But we, we've presented here today on, on four systems uh, using the National Farm Survey data, dairy, cattle, sheep and tillage. Um, and there's a question about uh, do we have horticulture? Are we collecting data on pigs and so on? And, and just to go back what I just commented a few minutes ago, um, we will always work. The, we need the, the voluntary participation of the farmers to have the data. So we have research projects on just about to start on collecting or trying to collect equivalent data that we've seen here today uh, for the horticulture sector. So we have an ambition to have something like this in a number of years time on the horticulture sector and its environmental, economic and social uh, performance. But again, it's conditional on that cooperation of the farmers. So that's something we're definitely working on. Horticulture isn't part of the tillage sector, so it's it's distinct. Okay, on pigs, we are collecting data within the FADN for our FADN uh, requirements uh, from pig farms with the cooperation of pig farmers. Um, we will need to work with our environmental and animal science colleagues to come up with meaningful metrics about what it, what how do you measure the environmental performance of pig farms? So. Pick farms on a per hectare basis. Does it make sense to think about them on a per hectare of the of the farms area when many of these farms are importing their feed from other farms predominantly? So we need to think through those things. Again, we'll be working with our environmental and animal science colleagues to actually come up with a meaningful metric economically, socially, and environmentally. Okay. Um, a question okay. here in the context of environmental sustainability. I know that you look at mitigation and uh, protection of biodiversity, but should this not also include uh, climate change adaptation? And is it being considered going forward? Beverage, you want to talk about uh, the new project that's about to start? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's a very relevant question. Um, up till now, and we can say this in in, in across all areas of the economy. Um, the situation has been that it is mitigation that has taken priority over adaptation. And uh, I guess you could argue to some extent that without mitigation, there might be nothing there to to adapt <laughs> in the future in the context of agriculture. So I think it's uh, understanding. Uh, it's understandable that the focus has uh, been on mitigation. I think some actors as well uh, have um being concerned about a focus on adaptation because they see it as giving up the ghost in terms of the pursuit of emission reductions under under mitigation strategies. So some people have actively discouraged the pursuit of adaptation for that reason. Uh, but to get on to the, the, the main point, um, uh, Chagask has hired a number of people now as part of its uh, uh, virtual climate centre. Uh, so one of those people, um, uh, our colleague Lorraine, We'll be looking specifically, we hope, at this uh, issue of uh, adaptation. Uh, she's uh, produced a, a project proposal on that, which is going through an evalu an external evaluation in terms of um, whether it will it will um, will go ahead. But I I'd be quite confident that it uh, it will. So that will look at adaptation. It will look at also look at wider areas of resilience uh, um, as well. You know uh, to not just to climate shocks, but to other types of shocks as well that we uh, increasingly see. I only have to mention, obviously, the dramatic increase in, in input prices that we've seen over the last uh, couple of years. So that wider resilience uh, issue uh, is something that we want to try to capture as well, not just uh, resilience to, to our uh, um, the ability to cope with uh, the types of change that might come through uh, changes to climate. So that is something that we will 
uh, cover as well. And we'll do that across the, the, the principal farm systems initially. Um, and we'll also um, engage with uh, farmers to try to understand their attitudes to both mitigation and adaptation measures. Might just come in there. Yeah. Might just come in there as well in terms of like we're working with colleagues in 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 the agri um, agri program, LDUL in particular in terms of climate. You know, trying to project what future climate scenarios look like. You know, working with midair and like because if we we kind of we kind of have to know what we're mitigating against. Like you know, what's the the different climate scenarios? So we have a project, uh, you know, proposal in funded uh, under under review with part of that college at the moment. Trying first of all model what the different streams would be, and then look at how we mitigate some of those those extremes or less extreme um scenarios. Uh, there's a question. The next question on the list is about the economic sustainability of Irish farms compared to other countries in the Europe in the European Union and and in the UK, and you know, there's lots of research going on um, other than that presented by Cahill and Trevor here and Simon in, in, in rural economy. But one of our colleagues, Fiona Thorne, has, has worked on this question for, for a long number of years, let's put it like that. Um, and I think sort of this, this, the comparative story that Cahill told uh, within the NFS data, you know, when we think about how we compare against European or British peers, we're generally speaking, comparing, trying to compare apples with apples. So we're comparing dairy farms in Ireland with dairy farms in, in other countries in the European Union, tillage farms in Ireland and beef farms in Ireland, sheep farms. I think as a general statement, our, our, our dairy farms are very competitive economically. Uh, our tillage farms tend to be quite competitive, but our the, 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 the dry stock enterprises tend to be less competitive uh, in an economic context with, than our European uh, peers. Um, the FADN is is a standardized data set, and the great value of that data set is not only that it's statistically representative of the member states, but that it allows you to compare the economic uh, metrics uh, between member states for for well defined uh, farm systems. So, um, Google the FADN, and you will find summary reports that 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 show how Ireland and Irish farms compare with their peers from all the other member states. The UK, um, unfortunately, has left the European Union, and while uh, you'll find the historical data that compares our performance with the with with Great Britain and Northern Ireland, um, you'll have to start digging out farm business survey reports uh, from those uh, that that other country as we move forward through time. Well, they're unfortunate consequence of Brexit. We've talked a lot about on on mm. on, on uh, webinars. Uh, question or a, a comment and a question uh basically saying that efficiency is of, of no real value in terms of greenhouse gas emissions if they're increasing how can uh we re effectively reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh to meet our our uh, uh, objectives going forward well i think you know People think that productivity isn't important for for climate change uh, or environmental purposes. They they really need to think about uh, how they think about the world at large. I mean, it's very important. Um, even if if emissions were going up, if we weren't getting productivity improvements, emissions would be going up even more. Okay, thankfully, emissions at the moment are not going up at a sectoral level from agriculture. They're relatively stable, so we want to see though that footprint improve over time. But the, le the legal requirement is that the sectoral emissions fall. So the type of things that Cahill talked about in his presentation that are in the Chagas map, collectively across the sector with government and with industry, we need to see those things happening. And I guess that's what the signpost program is all about, Pat, is trying to get 
the message out there and show how it is eminently feasible for most of these measures to be adopted by farmers and to be adopted quickly. And the more quickly they're adopted, the more progress we will make towards uh, our 2030 target. So, and, and I suppose uh, coming to an issue that, that uh, Cahal raised in relation to, to fertilizer type, uh, and it says with uh, protected urea being such an easy win, why are we not having, uh, or why are non-protected uh, fertilizers allowed to be sold? I don't know, this is beyond the scope of, of uh, anybody at this, but uh, I suppose it does point to, I suppose, a question that you raised, Carl, uh, about the speed at which we are getting a shift over to uh, a protected urea, and in particular, the almost a, a pollution swapping where over the last couple of years, because of availability, we've seen a massive shift in the type of fertilizer being used with a, a lot, a big shift over to urea, but it not being particularly to protected urea. Um, that's a challenge, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. You know, in terms of, you know, there has been supply chain issues, like, you know, I think look, the industry needs to come together, really. Uh, Chagas have done the science. They, we know it works. There's no residues. We know it, it's, you know, it, it does, it does what, what it's in the Chagas Mac for a reason. So we just need to get on and, and, and get it implemented. Uh, I, I suppose a, a technical question there for nitrogen efficiency. How do you factor in purchase feed, and where uh, where are this the sources, production amounts used? How are they factored in into your calculation? Yeah, I suppose from from a nitrogen a nitrogen surface perspective, it uh, it doesn't really uh, doesn't really count where that where the the feed comes in. It just calculates the quantity of nitrogen in that feed. Now, from the greenhouse, you know, we do LCAs from a greenhouse gas perspective, which accounts for, you know, if that soya is coming from Brazil and the carbon footprint of that. So, you know, we do track that from a GHE perspective, but the, the counting framework, you know, uh, doesn't really do from a farm gates perspective. We, it's, we, we may develop down the line in terms of an nitrogen flow um, scenario. We do pick it up in, in, the, in the greenhouse gas side. Okay. Question there, how does the carbon footprint that you calculate compared with data published by Board Bia from their quality assurance? So the the, the carbon footprint numbers I, pr I present today were based on IPCC methodology. This is how our national inventories are calculated. We also published in a report an, an LCA number. In previous years, I put up slides comparing our number to Board Bia. We're actually transitioning at the moment from a from, a, from it's it's a bit of a technical point. We're transitioning from an economic allocation to a biophysical allocation. So the models are actually in the midst of of, of changing. That's the reason I didn't cross site here. We we expect the numbers are going generally in the same direction. They're not exactly the same, but they are going in the same direction. Uh, and next year I expect to be able to cross site again when when those models are aligned again. Okay, a, a question here, I suppose, look, looking forward, in, in what year do you expect Chagas report to include uh, greenhouse gas uh, sequestration at farm level? A I, lot I think, of work think, to be done before that can happen. I, I, I think I think our, I think our, there's an awful lot of work needs to be done by our environmental science colleagues. And again, back to her banging the drum about how this work in terms of indicators in the sustainability report really does leverage off of collaboration with people in CELUP. And once we've got the... It's the hard science, environmental science done, then we'll do the even harder economic science uh, that sort of tries to integrate them together with the sort of the human factors that that affect uh, the emissions you get um, or the sequestration you get at, at, at a farm scale level. But it's tricky stuff um, and we're not going to rush into it just just for the point of being seen to have something done. 
So yeah, so it's a, and and uh, I suppose a lot of work do, being done at the moment in relation to the the carbon observatory, where uh, a lot of of uh, uh, data is being gathered on the emissions and the the relative losses and and, and gains in, into soil carbon. So as you said, a lot, lot of work to be done there. Uh, is there a, a potential uh, to look at? Uh, uh, and link the work that's being done in in relation to uh, the water indicators that you have to link that to some of the outcomes in terms of river catchments uh, uh, and uh, impact on on water quality, as opposed to just dealing with uh, uh, nutrients on their own. Okay, it's possible, Pat. Again, again, it goes back to what data we have available. You know, can we get access to to things like AIMS and LIPAS and, and model where the where the farms are spatially and what what systems and how they're managing their their, their fertilizers? So, look, there is a there is a potential there to you know to do a, a some kind of spatial matching to model you know the model where, where where the source pressures is. Like go back to the go back to the point about water quality. Like hugely, we see the, we've seen from the agricultural catchments program. The soils, the hydrology, the weather are hugely, uh, you know, uh, effectual in terms of the the, the nitrogen losses. It's not, it's not just the, the source pressure because some of the, the more intensive catchments can handle uh, intensive catchments can handle uh, high surplus versus uh, versus another place which which can't. Like so, it's really really down to local biophysical environment of what 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 kind of source pressure and and the other the biophysical environment can handle. Question here, and uh, probably a, a fairly important one and a fairly challenging one. Uh, are there any plans to measure ecosystem services? Um, well, we've, I would argue we've kind of started to do that now. Uh, I, we have a PhD student working in, in the burn who's 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 who's, do, who's who's trying to do it from a, from a small scale basis. So we start from there and, and work out. But if you look at it, it's hugely it's hugely challenging. And again, I saw I saw in one of the questions were relation to we're not capturing stuff like biodiversity or recreational benefits. Which is true, and let, um, someone who's worked in non-market valuations, it's very, very difficult to capture those kind of um, those kind of uh, non-market non-market benefits. But that said, like what the work of Simon has been doing, uh, which I'm finding ourselves, like those uh, biodiversity areas tend to high biodiversity areas tend to correlate with the high recreational areas. So in, in a sense, you could probably use it as a bit of a proxy if you overlay it with maybe. Maybe recreational um, um, recreation areas to try and capture, you know, the the interaction between that and and recreation. Okay, a question here: Is there a correlation between improved environmental and economic sustainability on farms? Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, I would say uh, there's a correlation between uh, carbon footprint and economic performance, but. To be honest, it probably goes the other way when absolute emissions. You know, the like we've seen like we're we're a bovine-based uh, cultural system. Seventy percent of the emissions rate directly to the animal. You know, until such time as we can address methane, and we're we're people are actively chasing it, like um, feed additives and so on. Like you know, until such things that we can address that, like you know, the 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 the, the, the you know the the link the link is not really established in, in, in absolute terms. It is for carbon footprint. Okay, a, 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 a comment here first. Thanks for uh, uh, the presentation, Cahal. Uh, why do you think there is such a difference uh, between adoption of, of less compared with protected urea? Uh, and a, a question, is it driven by contractors? 
Well, the short answer in terms of regulation has been driving the, the less, to be honest, you know, it started under the right directive that delegation farmers had to do it, and that's been extended. And contractors obviously purchased the, the purchased the machinery to service the, the, the far, those farmers, and then they use it probably on the non-delegation farmers. So that's primarily been driven by by regulation, but also TAMS grants, you know, there, there was significant capital grants there to, to purchase the machinery. Less, less is voluntary. Uh, and look at the, there's been supply chain issues, and I think we covered it already, Pat. Like, but we need we really need to get our act together when it comes to protected urea and uh, and get it get it adapted. Uh, a, a question here in in relation to anaerobic digesters, and and again, it may not be something that you're one to comment hugely on, but anaerobic digesters and and the creation of a biomethane industry in Ireland has been flagged as a game changer in relation to dairy farmer farming. To what extent? Do Chagas see uh, the, uh, such a development playing a decarbonisation role in the dairy sector? Um, I think that's uh, I think that's a, a challenging one. Um, Pat, I, I mean, there is other research ongoing, uh, which may well be the subject of a, a subsequent uh, um, signpost seminar on, on that specific topic. Uh, I think the short answer, um, and I don't want to preempt the results of other people's work, um is that um you know this may be this may be a viable alternative uh to some parts of agriculture but the sheer profitability of dairy farming uh, means that that's probably not where we're going to see um the, a transition coming um you know and in, 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 so i think it's going to be more dry stock farmers that may will engage with that technology um certainly dairy farms could be a source for slurry but yeah. in terms of the, the grass silage, I think that's more likely to come um, from dry stock farms. A, a question here for, for Simon. Uh, we, we, we haven't uh, uh, questioned yet, yet to any extent. Uh, Simon, uh, is there a balance to be had be, uh, between acceptable biodiversity levels and sustainable uh, output from farms? Farms shown in your example goes from one extreme to another, I suppose, with, with uh, upland and, and uh, productive lowland. So I suppose they're, what they're asking is, for how do we balance and uh, assess biodiversity in the context of uh, production levels on, on the farm? So you're yeah. on mute there, Simon. Certainly, those those examples were designed to, to show exactly that, that there's a, there's a full spectrum of biodiversity levels across different farms in different parts of the, the country. And then... Um, as as Cahill said in his presentation, there's always a, a need to balance um, economic sustainability and other elements of sustainability with with the biodiversity side. Um, but I, I think there's always an opportunity to focus and try to um, try to improve biodiversity status in the landscape, whether you're in a more intensive area or or you're farming in a, a high nature value part of the country. So whether you're focusing on reinstating and and adding features to support biodiversity into an intense landscape or whether you're focusing on improving the quality um, of existing habitats in a higher nature value area. I think that there's a there's a there's a balance to be had, but there's always an opportunity to make improvements too. Yeah. Uh, Carl, there's a, a, a question in relation to uh, the labor efficiency and the, and the amount of labor, particularly on, on, on dairy farms. And, and I assume part of the trend over the year has over the years has been the increased uh, um, size of, of those units. Uh, 
but I suppose a question there is the uh, availability of, of labour uh, um, on da- for dairy farmers becoming an issue in, uh, I suppose, a more unsustainable system whereby they're not able to get uh, uh, outside labour to work. Anecdotally, Pat, that seems to be the case. Um, we do we do we do track like the, the kind of paid labour as an unpaid labour, and you know the, there has been more paid labour employed on dairy farms uh, in, over the time series. I suppose look at it's it, in a full economy, it's hard to attract. Uh, I suppose it'd be hard to attract people in, in into the into dairy into into the agricultural sector. Um, to be honest, like, but the the concerning point for me, and as I raised in our presentation, is. The amount of hours being put in on on those dairy farms by farm by by farm families and farmers in particular is 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 trending upwards and you know it's from a work life balance perspective has to be questioned. Okay, there's there's a question there, and again, it's, it it'll be a difficult one to answer. Uh, it, it alludes to the the achievement of the uh, measures in the MAC, uh, getting our our twenty five percent reduction, mm. uh, and if we don't. What kind of levels of, of fines uh, are possible from the EU in in, in relation to uh, not achieving our targets? Yeah, I I, I don't think. Um, I mean, there are there are budgets uh, in place already um, for for the in, entire economy. I don't think there's going to be a specific budget um, for GHGs associated specifically with the achievement of uh, the twenty um, twenty twenty three back uh, MAC. I mean, the best way to think about this concept of a budget is to imagine it to be uh, a box of sweets that you might have there at Christmas time. And uh, progressively each year, the number of sweets in that box is going to get smaller. And that's something I think we've all experienced in recent years. And it becomes a question then of how you use up the sweets in the box and how quickly you do that. And if you eat more sweets uh, the first few days, you'll have you'll find that there's fewer sweets left uh, subsequently. So. At the moment, what we're doing at a national level in Ireland is reading the sweets too quickly. And um, that will mean that our efforts or, or the pain involved in reducing emissions will become more acute as we move uh, further forward in time. That's, is, that's assuming that the targets are, are actually ultimately be, to be achieved. I, I can't comment specifically, Pat, on what, what um, fines would be involved uh, out towards the end uh, of that period for yeah. um, for non-compliance. I think the, the Fiscal Advisory Council had a report out yesterday, the day before, that that, that pointed to it being a risk if, if if the economy as a whole didn't um, didn't did, didn't make the reductions that are in our European effort sharing regulation commitments. But the um, the, the, the the national act and the twenty five percent target that the agricultural sector has, um, I think that's the minister can be. Be, can be brought to court uh, under the law if, if that isn't met, as can other ministers of government who have a responsibility for the other sectors that are also behind behind the curve in terms of living within their budgets. So we don't know yet, I guess, is a simple answer. Yeah. Uh, a, a question there about any link, is there any link between uh, what's been done in terms of the biodiversity indicators with the Department of Agriculture pilot uh, farm environmental uh, study? And and the development of of our indicators. Um, no, no, yeah, go on, Simon. Let you answer. Sorry, I, there's uh, there's no direct link um, with it. I I imagine uh, my understanding would be that the the pilot study would be about KT and and developing understanding and practice um, 
our focus at the moment is obviously it's in the same area, but it's about developing um, a, a representative indicator to look at the at the status on on farms nationally. Um, no, so the so the, the the people in the Department of Agriculture have are starting research project uh, that will be looking at this, but on a but but on a nothing like the the, the kind of sample size that we're working with within the National Farm Survey. Um, uh, but they are they they're used they're using it because they have a requirement under the cap to um have an evaluation metrics uh, for the the things that they're doing within the, the the cap strategic plan, um, so we'll see how they get on with that and w- they certainly are fully aware of the work we're doing and we're being kept abreast both as the eco- economists in Chagas and as ecologists and environmental scientists about how they're designing their their um, evaluation um. Uh, project so it's um there's cross fertilization but they're not directly linked uh climate says there's a there's a uh you you if i if i'm correct in this and if the questioner is correct you noted a, a i suppose an improvement or a, a a decline in vulnerability across a number of the the, the sectors but the question is, is the, the decline in vulnerability of those farmers more down to what's happening on the farm or is it I suppose uh, better employment and and uh, uh, off farm factors that that are contributing most to that. It's a combination of of of, of those factors. To be honest, Pat, like the so we saw some higher prices in in previous years, uh, which which brought the some of those livestock systems who are, who are marginally at the at the edge in terms of being economically viable or not, put them over the edge. Uh, with slightly increasing off-farm employment, like we have a lot of um, off-farm employment opportunities, we're full employment now. So it's really a combination of, of both the on and off-farm situation. Um, like that, it, that's the you know the, the 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 household level, like you know. But like a lot, a lot of these people have either a spouse or or the farmer themselves are working off-farm, particularly in the rice sector. And a question there in relation to uh, um, succession and and aid structure. Have we any indicator as to whether the uh, uh, age structure within the various enterprises is is imp- is getting older or younger, and whether there's a, a an improvement or disimprovement in the availability of a successor to to continue? But I suppose both are key aspects of of long term sustainability of of an enterprise at farm level. Yeah, I mean, I think that. The... Across the sectors that we've talked about here today, dairy farming would have the lowest age profile, and uh, the dry stock sectors would have the highest age profile. So it's um it's a it's a tricky it's a it's a tricky question in the sense that if we want to rejuvenate farming, it needs to be attractive and attractive um proposition for for young people who are considering what they're going to do in terms of their working lives, um because they're the 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 overall population is getting older and. Dry stock farmers are are have higher isolation risk. They're 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 great. They're older farmers in general. So, um, but trying to try to persuade people to 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 take up farming as as a as a effectively a lifestyle, um, or as their as their preferred occupation, the there has to be living in it. And it's it's about how you either create a living on a full time basis for a farmer and his or her family, or create systems that are that are combinable with work off the farm. And for many farmers and farm families, that that is the reality in in 21st century Ireland. Listen, I think uh, we've come to the end of our time. Really fascinating. And I think probably, Carl, uh, what you have presented is is the tip of the iceberg in terms of the the data that's available in in the report. 
it's it's a, a becoming a very deep dive into the uh, uh, sustainability and the the development of sustainability on on Irish farms. Uh, I think it's going to increase in importance as 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 we go forward. So I'd just like to say th thank you to all of you uh, uh, for your for your presentations and and for the answering of what are a very broad range of questions, some directly related to the, the survey itself and some to broader uh, industry issues, which, which may be challenging to, to answer. So thank you very much for, for your contributions there. Uh, just to, to remind you that, that uh, once again, that that's the uh, webinar this morning is, uh, uh, I suppose, the, the start of a series of, of uh, um, Signpost Sustainability Month events, uh, which you can find by Googling uh, Signpost Sustainability Month on uh, uh, and, and get a list of the events that are going on. So thanks for staying with us and uh, hopefully we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.